0: This is the Canoe Creek Podcast. Our vision is to help people in our community connect to God, grow in Christ, and go serve others. We are located at 4080 Pine Tree Road, and our Sunday morning service times are 9 o'clock and 1030. Thank you for tuning in. Good morning, Canoe Creek. Sounds like it's a good day to go home and wrap up in your Snuggie. Or your slinket or whatever else you got over there at your house. Excited about uh, this sermon series because what we've been doing in this series is identifying the characteristics of God as they're determined by God. Uh, Because culture has a way of taking uh, the truth about God and distorting it only in small pieces. So that we can continue to hold on to something that we believe to be true about God. And and it gives us the freedom to live how we want to live rather than conform to who God really is, which is what we're called to be. You know, it's one of the definitions that we have of a disciple, somebody who's following Jesus, being made new and transformed by Jesus and on a mission with Jesus. It's a simple way of identifying whether or not we are following him, whether or not we are trusting in him and surrendering to him. And this topic today is a really, it's a really difficult one. Um, I, you know, it's funny. This is how difficult it is. When I went to grab a shirt this morning, I started to grab like my Hawaiian flower shirt and I was like, Oh no, I remember what I was preaching. I was like, I got to get more business-like because we've got to be serious. This is a tough topic we're dealing with when we talk about the justice of God. You know, Roger Ingersoll, uh, Robert Ingersoll was a, uh, pronounced atheist of his day. Uh, he was He even had a title as he was an agnostic, really not an atheist, but basically said there is no God, no need to worry about God, no need to believe in God uh, kind of idea. There's nothing out there. And he would go around sharing this with anybody who could share it with. And he was in a small New York town one time, and he's sharing this, and this one drunk guy speaks up and says, I sure hope you're right, Brother Bob, I'm counting on it. And that's the way culture is. You know, sometimes we're counting on the idea that God doesn't exist or that God doesn't care or God isn't just. Or he'll justify me, he'll, he'll, give, me, you know, he'll give me mercy because I'm a good person, because I'm a nice person. And, and this is one of the things that our current culture has done to remake God, to, to recast his character to suit our needs. I want him to look the way that I want him to look. I want him to accept the, what, the, the things I want him to accept. So that way I can feel comfortable about who I am or how I'm living or whatever it may be. You know, in an article in Time Magazine in 1965, it's going back a little ways. Culture's been under assault ever since Adam and Eve left the garden, by the way. But in 1965 in Time Magazine, there was an article titled, Love in Place of Law. There were 900 scholars of biblical proportions that gathered together at Harvard. They were professors, they were clergy, church leaders, and they were discussing whether or not we should put the love of God in place of the law of God as if those two things contradict. I think they actually agree, but that's a whole other topic in some ways. And one of them said, one professor of divinity said, sex before marriage was acceptable and God would understand. Uh, one of a uh, clergy leader said that there's no sexual relationship that should be condemned by the church. This was in 1965. So this idea of people trying to reshape the character of God so that we feel culturally acceptable has been going on for a long time, and it's a significant struggle. Now, God certainly is loving. Uh, Matter of fact, He's fiercely loving, more loving than we can comprehend, more loving than we can be, more loving than we can understand at this time. But he's also just. Uh, he's perfectly justified in any decision he makes. He's perfectly righteous, perfectly holy in every way. Think about this justice is about right and wrong. Proverbs 28 5 says, Evildoers do not understand what is right. Evildoers don't understand what's right because they're evildoers or they suppress it to make themselves feel good about it. Uh, Justice also leads to judgment. These are the words of Jesus himself when he says in Matthew 13, The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the burning, blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Often when people say, well, Jesus was just about nothing but love, But he was also about justice as well. And he himself said that. Those are his words. And then, you know, the reality though is is that there is mercy with God. We do find mercy with God, which is important. James 2 says, Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Some really great verses there, you know. It's more of a... um, legend, and it is a real story at this point, but there's this story that's of legendary proportions about how Napoleon had to discipline a citizen, and it was a second offense, and the law required that he be punished by death, and his mom obviously is pleading with Napoleon that Napoleon would show mercy, and he ends up saying, Napoleon says to him, but your son doesn't deserve mercy, and the mother replied, well, if, if it would not be mercy if he deserved it, and so, Perfect point, very clear point, that mercy isn't necessarily deserved. Mercy is something that somebody gives out of the goodness of their heart. But the issue is, is how does God balance his, his perfect, fierce love for anything righteous, anyone righteous, with his absolute necessity to be just? Because just like last week we talked about, God isn't, just simply following some sort of standard to be good. God is the standard of good. He's not following some sort of standard to say, okay, I'm following underneath what I consider to be my standard of justice. No, he is justice. He is just. It's his character. It's his nature. How does he balance those two? Let's take a look at an interesting story. Genesis, real easy to find, Uh, Genesis chapter 18, just go to the first book of the Bible, you can use a Bible like this that are on the racks in front of you if you didn't bring one, and if you don't own one, you can keep that Bible in front of you on the rack, take it home with you. In Genesis chapter 18, we find a very interesting story. Abraham, who's to be the father of the Israelite nation, he... um, he encounters three special visitors. One of them is described as the Lord. And we would assume the other two are angels or just this envoy with the Lord. Is basically God making himself visible in, in a physical presence to, to Abraham. And this is an interesting story which... Cons, you know ends up flowing out of this and there's a lot more to it that comes before it more that comes after it as it is it's pretty long as it is so so i'm going to read it for you though but want to kind of give you the context of what's going on abraham having a conversation in a sense with the lord manifested as a human face to face and here's what we read beginning in verse 16 genesis 18 verse 16 when the men got up to leave they looked down towards sodom and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abram what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will, be, he will direct the children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I'll know. Then the men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abram remained standing before the Lord, and then he approached uh, him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous... With the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five people? If I find 45, he said, I will not destroy it. One of the things that we learn in the story about Abraham, he doesn't know how to negotiate. All right, And he doesn't know how to take yes as an answer. He started way too high. He should have started way lower. Once again, he spoke. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? I I can see the Lord saying, Really, Abraham, are we still going here? He said, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry. Oh, but I am. No, I'm just kidding. But let me speak just once more. What if only... Ten can be found. He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. He should have started with ten. He might have got down to one. This is an interesting story. And there's a couple of things that really pop out to us when we talk about the justice of God and how does he balance that justice? With the fact that he is also loving. He, his, his justice demands that something that is some guilty party receive the punishment for that guilt. But at the same time his love desires to dispense with that guilt. Well one of the things that really pops out here is that the statement where God or the Lord in this angel form or something. I don't know how all that works but he says should I reveal to Abraham what is about to happen. That's a really great statement. Now, it's one of those statements where you're talking to somebody else, but the person you're talking about is standing right there, and they overhear. And once you say that, you're like, well, now you've got to tell me. I mean, you can't just let the cat out of the bag like that and not tell me what's going on. But that's what we kind of see here is It's almost as if the Lord is talking to these other two divine individuals, and, and ultimately, he turns to Abraham, and he tells him what's going on. But he says, should I reveal this to him? Which tells us something about... One of the things that we wrestle with in terms of the idea of justice in this life, in this world, in this current phase of what God has created. And it's, sometimes it's clouded. Sometimes it's dark. Sometimes there's an element of mystery. You know, God has revealed things about himself. And what we know of him is because he's revealed those things. But there, what, what hasn't he revealed? What is it that yet we're, we're going to learn when we see him, there's certainly a mystery to God in certain regards. Uh, Psalms 97 says this clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. You know, this conveys the idea of this clouds and thick darkness. There are things about God that are mysterious. There are things about God that we don't fully comprehend. This is why sometimes people are really pushed off by Christians is because we can come across sometimes as we know it all, we figured it all out. The reality is is when it comes down to it, we've got some really great basic questions answered. And there's a lot of things that we're still trying to figure out and and understand better because God is, is mysterious in some ways. And in this world we live in, in this current phase that is broken world, The justice of God is sometimes clouded, sometimes dark, it's sometimes hard to get get through, and and we wrestle with it. I mean, at the end of the day, when we talk about justice in this world that we live in, uh, think about this. Tozer says, justice is the application of equality to moral situations. It may be favorable or unfavorable according to whether the one under examination has been equitable or inequitable in heart and in conduct. Basically, what he's saying is people get what they deserve. But then we roll that back a little bit and say, well, wait a minute. You know, not always. Not in this world. Justice doesn't seem to really win out. Justice is perverted at times. Justice in our system is broke. I mean, you go into a courtroom, there's legal defenses, there's technicalities, there's all kinds of things that can get people off to where, you know, Innocent people sometimes get convicted, guilty people sometimes go free, and so that could be a frustration. But you know, one of the things that helps us understand why that is the way that it is right now is increasing, uh, nourishing, um, improving our biblical worldview. You know, the world is trying to form our framework into what it wants to so that we define God in a way that lets us live however we want to live. But a biblical worldview moves us in the direction. Remember that there, there's some things that we've got to account for. And let me just, I'll, this image will be up on the screen to kind of give you an idea. You know, there's eternity past, and God's justice is perfect in that phase. And we kind of go into the phase that we're in right now, time as we know it, time as we understand it. There's obviously the description of eternity past in Genesis 1 and 2, description of eternity future in Revelation 21 and 22. But then that gets us to eternity future. And when we think about this cloudiness of God, the mystery of God, how justice is clouded, not always served like it says there that from his throne, this foundation is righteousness and justice. We're living in a time, a small space of time where that justice is perverted sometimes, where it doesn't always work out the way that God would. Why? Because he's given freedom, the dignity to humans to choose left or right, up or down, which way they want to go. And so unfortunately, sometimes justice is perverted, but it's only in that small season of time, an eternity past and an eternity future, and all of that time that we will reside in the presence of God and be separated from the presence of anything evil and any injustice, God will right every wrong. Whatever it is that's been done on this earth that is not justified, God will justify. God will bring with that a sense of peace. He'll bring with that perfect joy. He'll bring with that a perfect society and place in which we will be able to dwell with him and with one another. in perfect unity. And yet at the same time, perfect diversity. A picture of the Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit, three in one. But right now, we're in a season, we're in a time where, that, where there's a struggle, where there's a problem. Where righteousness and justice don't always prevail. Now, there, there's something else that we see in this text, in this story, and it's found in this statement where God says, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, I will go see for myself. He already knows what he's going to do. I mean, Abraham has pleaded. He, he, Abraham acts as a high priest in a sense, and he pleads for the people. And he's really conflicted with an issue we're going to talk about here in the, in the close in just a second. This idea that God, I mean, he's... He's a righteous God. He's a just God, but he's a loving God. How is it that he's going to punish, you know, even if there's 10 righteous or nine righteous along with all the, how is he going to punish them all together? And he's wrestling with that. But God says, I'm going to go see for myself. This is the Christmas story. You know, Sodom and Gomorrah was a city. It was a place, but now it's a heart. It's our hearts where there's struggle, where there's wickedness, where there's sin, where there's problems. And, and what is Christmas other than the fact that God came to see for himself what's going on? What can I do? How can this be fixed? And, 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 it, and essentially, you know, sometimes, and we understand this as parents, and we understand this as employers or employees or whatever it may be along the line, that, you know, we got to see something in order to deal with it, Right? That, you know, we get one kid that comes to us and gives us a story. Then the other kid comes to us and gives us another story. And those stories conflict. So we just punish all of them equally the same. And say, well, if you didn't do it, you probably did something that you deserve punishment for anyway. Um, that's at least how it works at my house. not sure how it works at yours. So, you know, but but you got to see it, right? If I can just catch them in the act, if I can see what's going on then I know that I can deal with it. And that's really what this is about. The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, he says. Whatever it is that they're doing, however it is that they're perverting the justice or the will of God, God is going to punish that. Sin requires punishment. C.S. Lewis puts it really well in his uh, book called Mere Christianity. He says this, These then are the two points I wanted to make. First, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. Secondly, that they do not, in fact, behave in that way. They know the law of nature. They break it. These two facts are the foundations of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. You know, not only is there right and wrong We understand that there's cause and effect associated with both. And we know that when we violate that code of right and wrong, there's going to be consequences. There's going to be punishment. What do we do? Sometimes we lie. Sometimes we deceive. Sometimes we manipulate. Sometimes we use my favorite statement. I'd rather ask for forgiveness than permission. You know, and we do all kinds of things, and we crowd around in dark corners, and why do we do things like that? Why do we try to get away with something without somebody seeing or somebody knowing? Because we know that what we're doing, what we're thinking, our actions aren't aligned with what is right, what is justified, what is righteous, what is good, and and yet we try to get away with it. We try to get around it. And we try to live the same way by redefining the character of God and the justice of God. Well, I'm pretty much a good person, you know. I mean, compared to Hitler, i am definitely got to be on the nice list. So I, I fit into some sort of good mold there. And we justify ourselves rather than allowing the word and the nature and the presence of God to justify us. According to what his will is. According to what he would ultimately desire. And we know this true to be true to our hearts. Uh, There was a guy, this was back, I think the the story was in 85, 1985. I'll find some contemporary stories for you next week. All right. Um, 1985, uh, there was a man in uh, in Manchester, England, and he killed his estranged wife. It was kind of a crime of passion they had met, and she was revealing something that she knew about him, and she said, I'm going to tell everybody about it, and he freaks out and gets aggravated and, and kills her. So he goes and he hides her, basically on the edge of a swamp, somewhere, obviously, where nobody would find her. 22 years later, 22 years later, they're doing some work in the area. They unearth a woman's skeleton. Dude freaks out, spills his guts, turns himself in. I killed my wife 22 years ago. They did tests on the bones. The woman was 1,600 years old. They went to where he said that he had laid her to rest after he killed her, and they never could find her remains. And yet, you know, he he convicted himself because we know what's to be true And when we break that threshold. And whether it's something really serious and significant, such as taking somebody's life, or something that sociably is a little bit more acceptable, just because it's sociably acceptable or unacceptable, the question is, how does it measure up to God? How does it measure up to his standard and his justice? Because his justice demands payment for guilty party. His justice demands that sin that breaks his law be punished. And that's just a reality that we've got to deal with and we've got to understand. But here's here's the truth. Some people don't care, right? Think about this. Romans, Paul says it really well. Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been made clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse." See, we try, we redefine the character of God. We suppress the truth and wickedness to say it's acceptable. This is why misery loves company. This is why, you know, all bad character tries to corrupt other character because they want to feel good about what they're doing and not be condemned by somebody's good actions or good behaviors. Paul really sums it up well, and the reality is some people don't care. Today's today, tomorrow's tomorrow. It's a childish behavior. It's not ability to see or have any vision to realize that there's consequences to my actions. There's punitive punishment that comes along with my actions. Some people try to argue against God. Tell me how that works out for you. You know, it may go along the lines of, well, it's not my fault. You made me this way. It's your fault. You got to deal with this. You know, I'm perfectly fine. I'm acceptable, yada, yada, yada. Some people try to bury their head in the sand and cry ignorance, you know. Well, I was a really good person, though. I just did really good things, and I should be acceptable to you because of that, and so on and so forth. There's all kinds of arguments, but everyone, according to this verse, is without excuse when it comes to the judgment of God. Everyone, according to this verse, can look out into the world that we see and see the image and likeness of an amazing beautiful creator who's calling for our attention and as C.S. Lewis put it best there's this innate truth within our heart that we know something to be true and yet we violate that truth so we got two options there the first one is uh, change the standard the second one is figure out what the standard is and learn how to live according to that standard It's a struggle, just like that last song we sung, which I really enjoyed it and appreciated it. But it's an opportunity to to, to connect with the one who created us and the one who makes us new. But did you see it in this verse? It was the glimmer of hope. It was like the little, little shimmer of sunshine. That's my poeticness for today. All right. Right there, it's probably hard because we got we got lost in in Abraham's inability to negotiate properly, all right. But there was this amazing gospel proclamation. The whole story is a gospel proclamation. If you haven't caught that yet, but we'll see that here. But but ultimately, if you look back at that text in verse twenty one, it says, "The Lord says that I will go down." And I will see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. There's hope. There's hope right there. God says, if it's not as I've heard, if it's not the way that it's been portrayed, maybe it's not so bad. Maybe there's ten righteous. Righteous. There's hope there. There's, there's the gospel there. There's an opportunity there. There's God's own desire. I've got to satisfy this, this need for justice. Sin must be paid for. I want to love and honor righteousness. What am I supposed to do? And it's also embedded in the statements of Abraham. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? There's no Ten Commandments yet. There's no law yet. Abraham, a relationship with God that he has, just innately is understanding the character of God and knows that he will honor righteousness, that he will lift righteousness up. And if Abraham had started 10, worked to 5, he may have gotten to 1. And I want you to read the rest of the story later on today. If you have kids, don't read it with the kids. It's R rated, it's X rated. Read it first, figure out how to tell the kids in your own way, and talk to them about it as well. Because in that story, it is just convoluted, nasty, terrible, horrible, but lots the only shining shimmer of hope there is he tries to portray the righteousness of God and caring for the people that come down into the city. But Lot's not a member of that community. He's he's not ultimately a a member of that city. He's a sojourner moving his way through. And so in a sense, even if he had gotten down to one righteous, I think that God would have done what he did, and that is in punishing Sodom and Gomorrah. But as we look at that and as we understand that, Abraham gets a concept for it. Will you you make the righteous pay for what the wicked have done? And he, he wants to invert that. He wants to say, well, what about if there's 10 righteous? Can their righteousness help save the hundreds that are unrighteous? Which is an interesting thought. You know, it works in reverse all the time. Um, whether it's a family member, or a couple of family members, maybe you've had somebody associated with you, whether they're family or not, do something. And it comes back on you in a sense that, you know, you're viewed this way now. People think of this. You're guilty by association, right? And so, so you're automatically a guilty party even though you weren't really guilty just because of somebody that you're close to or know did this or did that. And, and what Abraham is saying, hey, can we reverse that? Can we make it go the opposite direction? Can it be that righteous people could ultimately help the unrighteous people? And what Abraham is trying to say is, if God is a righteous God, what hope there? What hope there for us flawed humans is there? If we could just find absolutely one truly righteous person, would not God, who loves righteousness for the sake of His love, for that righteous person save the many uh, for the righteousness of the one? There's the gospel. It's right there, it's how God solves, it's how he settles his need for justice, but his desire for love as well. You can see God pleading, and Jesus pleading with his father, in a sense, just in the way that Abraham pleaded with with his father. You know, here's the thing, Abraham acted as a high priest. He pleaded on behalf of the people for God to save them. But there's one who comes later, as according to Hebrews, uh, that, that Jesus is our high priest. And he pleads for us. And God says, well, you know, I paid for the debt. I paid for the guilt. I was perfectly righteous. And I gave up my life. Is it just of you, Father, to make someone pay twice for one debt owed? And, of course, the Father said, no, it's not. And so therefore, Jesus and his righteousness pays the debt for the many who are sinful, for the many who are unrighteous. And Abraham is pointing to Jesus, and he doesn't even know it. He's, he's confident founded by this whole situation, how can God do this? And and God ultimately won't do it because he will save those in, in, in place of the righteous person. That the righteousness of somebody else can be imputed. It can be passed on. It can be given to somebody else. Let me read something for you very quickly. This is in Chip Ingram's book, The Real God. It, I felt like it would be better read and quoted directly than it would be uh, regurgitated. All right? This is what he says. Hell is the clearest evidence that God is serious about preserving the dignity and freedom of humanity. Let me me read that again. Hell is the clearest evidence that God is serious about preserving the dignity and freedom of humanity. Because he respects our will, he has reserved a place for those who say... I am the captain of my own ship. I will live my own life, and no one can tell me what to do. We can't love someone unless we choose to accept him or reject him. God treats us as free moral agents and will honor our rejection of him for all eternity. C.S. Lewis was right when he described only two basic views of life. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those who say to God, my will be done. One of those statements represents your life. Hell preserves the dignity and the freedom of people who stiff arm God. God's justice says, I'll create a place of retribution. So anyone who wishes to say, stay away from me. Can do so. Hell is serious, and as it is as real as heaven. That is a really profound thought, which brings us back to the fact that God's justice and His love are married in a perfect way. That those who are righteous are righteous because it's been afforded to them by Christ. Because he's paid for it, and God in his just sense isn't going to allow that debt to be paid twice. But so many of us try to work so hard rather than conforming and trusting in Jesus Christ and following his will and his direction. And the question is, are you approaching God through a relationship with Jesus where you're learning how to live more like Jesus? As I said before, we define a disciple as one who's following Jesus, being transformed by Jesus, and on a mission with Jesus. And the justice of God is satisfied by the blood of Jesus the one we follow, the one we desire to be like, the one we listen to when he says this is what the mission is. You either desire a relationship with him or you don't. And here's the reality. God will honor your decision. And in honoring your decision, what he's doing is he's being justified. And he's also loving you because he's giving you the dignity of your humanity to make the choice that you want to make. One way or the other. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity uh, to study your word. This is a really meaty issue, Lord. And we just want to ask that you would Give us wisdom, give us clarity, uh, help us to understand what it really means to to see you as a perfectly just God, and yet at the same time, a perfectly loving God, Uh, to know that you allow us the opportunity and the freedom to choose to go left or to go right, and that in doing so, Lord, you are loving us, and in doing so, you are being justified. And Lord, we just ask that you'd help us to understand your will more, that we would have a better and clearer vision of your justice, and that through that it would increase our, our hearts to know you, to be drawn into you, to be uh, able to accept and ad- adapt and adjust to the basic things, and also always be inquisitive about the mysterious things, desiring a, a greater and grow in relationship with you. And so, Father, as you help us to make application of this, as you help us to trust the one whose blood has paid for uh, our sin so that we can be justified, Lord, help us to learn to live more like Christ and help us to share his truth and his love with the world that we live in, with friends, with family, with community. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.